Laura. My wife and I have retreated to a small cabin in the solitude of these mountains. I believe I have made a significant find in the Kandarian runes, a volume of ancient Sumerian burial practices and funerary incantations. It is entitled Naturan de Manto, roughly translated Book of the Dead. The book is bound in human flesh and inked in human blood. It deals with demons, demon resurrection and those forces which roam the forest and dark bowers of man's domain. It is through recitation of these passages that the demons are given license to possess the living. It's Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Scott Corelli. I'm Nick Jimenez. Today we are beginning our mini-series on the Evil Dead franchise with the ultimate experience in grueling terror that started it all, 1981's The Evil Dead. And we have a guest joining us to talk about friendly dismemberment, killer girlfriends, and fake shemps is writer Anya Crittenden. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I love The Evil Dead. It started a, a newfound love of horror for me, so... Very excited yeah. to talk about it. You know, it, it, it is, it is, uh, I, I find the fan base of, um, of the Evil Dead so interesting because, uh, you know, there's bad fans in every, every fandom, right? Um, toxic fans in every fandom. But I find that the Evil Dead franchise, I don't know what it is about it. But there seems to be like just like a general kind of like chill vibe with the fans of Evil Dead movies. And I'm not really sure what that is. It's also like I remember um, when the when the remake came out, like IGN did like the biggest, the best Evil Dead fan ever is going to get to watch the trailer for the first time. And we're going to watch them watch the trailer for the first time. And um, it was like 3,500 entries. And then the winner was this was this girl, this like Canadian girl like goth chick <laughs> and and uh i i just like i'm so fascinated by how many women like enjoy um evil dead and just like how like non-masculine it is despite and i wonder if it's just because like i don't know if it's like ash becomes like this sort of himbo like kind of character as the as it goes on or or the himbo the, helps yeah, the himbo definitely helps. And the fact that, like, he's so masculine, but it's like we're making fun of him. Maybe that, like, scares a lot of, like, those hyper-masculine, like, guys away. Or, like, I don't know what it is, but I find that really fascinating. Um, how, how, how balanced the Evil Dead fan base is of, like, genders and things like that. I think I love that. Um, so where do you, when did you first watch the Evil Dead? Was, was the Evil Dead the first thing that you watched? Or did you watch one of the sequels first? So, no, I watched um, The Evil Dead first. So mm -hmm. my history is kind of, I used to never like horror. I wouldn't touch it with like a 10-foot pole. I refused. Mm -hmm. I was like, it scares me when I go to bed at night. Um, except for the fact that my wife, who was many years ago my best friend and roommate, loves horror. And mm -hmm. she was like, I'm going to get you into horror if it's the last thing I do. Mm -hmm. And she started me off really strong by showing me Paranormal Activity and It Follows, both of which terrified me. Sure. Um, and then we moved in with another friend who also loves horror. And I was like, okay, clearly I'm on the wrong side here. 
<laughs> let's let's see what we can do. And I slowly started to watch more horror and I fell in love. I just this is now one of my favorite genres. I think it is so captivating. I think so much can be said with horror and I think it's beautiful. I love how campy it is. I love how queer it can be in so many different ways. And Evil Dead was one of the franchises I knew all about. I I knew Bruce Campbell personally from Hercules and Xena growing up. <laughs> um, and I knew Sam Raimi mostly as the director of the Spider-Man franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, all right, let's do Evil Dead. I know a lot about it. And so we started with The Evil Dead. And we proceeded on one Saturday to watch The Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness. And then we immediately went into watching Ash versus Evil Dead on Stars. Mm-hmm. And this was a handful of years ago, and I fell in love immediately. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the there's also this other element which, you know, if you are filmmaking minded, <laughs> this is up there with like Clerks in terms of like the story of the making of the Evil Dead is up there with Clerks of this like legendary like set it in stone like somebody did this and like they made this thing and the story of making this movie is so important to so many like amateur filmmakers because they're like he did it he he did it like no money and he did it and like that was that's another aspect of this that I'm sure that that Nick and I will will talk about a lot um Nick where did you where did you first watch the evil dead movies did you start with this I, one I am an evil dead too baby okay yeah um I have very strong memories of my like uh Netflix film school that I was on in high school. Mm-hmm. Um like I remember getting the physical disc of Evil Dead 2 and like tearing it open and pulling it out and <laughs> even the sleeve was a little yellow and molded. <laughs> um but Evil Dead 1 I have much m- much vaguer memories of like the circumstance. I think I was like well into my 20s when I finally sat down and watched it. Mm-hmm. Um but I mean, yeah, watching it this time was like it it's an overwhelming experience just because of like yeah, like you said, but what's happening on the camera and then knowing a little bit about what happened behind the camera of right. like the grueling experience it was to make this movie. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For me, I I believe my my father showed me um a Dead by Dawn first and uh the reason was he wanted me to watch Army of Darkness because he thought, like, I would really like that. I was like a kid. I was like, I don't know, 11, maybe. And he was like, I want you to watch Army of Darkness, but you have to watch Evil Dead 2 before you can watch Army of Darkness because he was, like, very much, like, into movies with cliffhangers and things like that. Um, and and so we watched Evil Dead 2, and I was like, <laughs> I was blown away by that one so much so that we watched Army of Darkness immediately after. And I was like... Yeah, I mean, I guess, but like Evil Dead 2 was great, which he was not expecting. Like that was not, he was expecting his 11-year-old son to be way more into Army of Darkness than Evil Dead 2. But I was like obsessed with Evil Dead 2. Um, I He had like, I think he had just rented them, I believe. Um, I, or I think he owned Army of Darkness, but had rented Evil Dead 2 for this occasion. Um, and then I went out and I like bought Evil Dead 2 myself with like my own money and like whatever. And then... It wasn't, it was weird because it wasn't until like years later that I was like, this is called Evil Dead 2. There's a, there's one before this. I should watch that, you know? And 
And so like I found it and I was like I was shook by both the the tone of it, which is not a horror comedy, you know, the way that Evil Dead 2 is. Um, it, you know, it is very much trying to be a legitimate horror film. Um, and then shortly after that, I like I watched it and there was something about it that was like breaking my brain because at this point I was like starting to really get into like filmmaking and things like that. And there was something about the evil dead that you can watch it and you can see the filmmaking happening. Even if you don't know anything about the story of the making of it, you can, you can see it. It, it, you can see like the bones and the scaffolding of this movie, you know, being held together. And, um, around this time, I think Bruce Campbell had published his autobiography. If chins could kill and reading that, that was like the first time that I ever like heard about the making of the evil dead, which was, you know, in in deep detail in his autobiography still like one of the best autobiographies i've ever read um it's so entertaining if anyone listening to this hasn't read it um i would actually recommend i mean there's there's diagrams and stuff in it that make the book having the actual physical book fun but i would recommend listening to the audiobook because bruce campbell reads it and so it's just like eight hours of bruce campbell telling you stories um which is so fun but um yeah this was very very meaningful uh to me um this and it was the thing that instantly made Sam Raimi like my favorite director at the time um you know now very famously you know anyone who listens to my podcast knows that my favorite director is Edgar Wright you can see a a very a very straight direct line from Sam Raimi to Edgar Wright um and so you can tell like the kinds of directors that I like but uh, there was something about like Sam Raimi's energy and the fact that he just like didn't care about the rules and would just sort of do whatever was going to whatever he felt in the moment was the best choice to use the camera, turn the camera into a character, which was something that wasn't really done very much um, at the time. And so all of that uh, being said, um, you know, it just it's it's an extremely meaningful movie. Uh, for me. And I think to this day, I think the evil dead is still my favorite of this series. And it's all because like I can watch it and it feels like hanging out with friends, just like doing their best, you know? <laughs> um, and, and I, you know, and I, I can, I can, I can absolutely say that like, yeah, evil dead two is the, the superior film, but I still think the evil dead is my favorite. Um, I'm with you on that one, Scott. I yeah. think, you know, I, it's interesting. So both of you saw Evil Dead 2 first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I right, I watched the Evil Dead first because I watched them all in order. We decided mm-hmm. to have a big Evil Dead day. But I knew the reputation of the franchise. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize the first one was such an earnest horror film. I yeah. was expecting the hijinks of Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, Ash versus Evil Dead. And so when I watched the first one, I was surprised that Mm -hmm. it actually was a much more straightforward horror film. And Mm -hmm. I think for that reason, Scott, I agree with you. It's my personal favorite, too. I also agree Evil Dead 2 is the superior film. But the Evil Dead just has a special place in my heart because you can see how you can see how much Sam Raimi was putting into this film when you watch it, like how much heart is in there and how much intention is in there. And I think that just makes it a really special film. Mm-hmm. And I think it was doing things that hadn't been done before. And it's just a really fun time. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think there is a purity to Evil Dead 2 um, that comes from like he basically didn't have to make any concessions on that film and he had something to prove with that one. This was more like, I'm going to prove that I can make a feature. Whereas that one was like, I'm going to prove that I can make a good movie <laughs> because after crime wave, you know, we'll get into it next week. But, um, this, this one is, is an interesting mixture of a lot of elements because, um, you know, I think most people who listen to this show have probably heard the story of the making of this. Um, but I'll, so I'll go through like kind of a cliff's notes version of it rather than really getting into the, to the nitty gritty. But, um, you know the 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 gang the your your Bruce Campbell your Sam Raimi and and your Rob Tapper they were um they all went to school uh together and um they used to make super 8 movies in high school and what they found was that they could get a discount on auditoriums as a student um at at I think Michigan State is where they went and um uh, they would rent out these auditoriums and then sell tickets to show their high school movies. And they made money doing this. And then that would like fund new super eight movies that they would go out and they would make. And then eventually they were like, let's drop out and make a feature. Um, and at the time, you know, this was in the late seventies. And so drive in culture was like at an all time high, like drive in grindhouse culture. And so Sam and Bruce and Rob would go to drive-ins and watch these horror movies in the 70s and watch these grindhouse movies and they would basically just take notes. What is what is the audience reacting to? What is what works in this movie, what doesn't work? What is the best stuff? And they basically wanted to make a horror movie that was the best of everything that people seemed to really react to um in these in these grindhouse horror movies. And I actually think you know, I've I've heard Sam say that, like, if he could re- do Evil Dead over again, he would not put, you know, the tree assault uh, in the movie. I think that tree assault is a direct result of movies like Last House on the Left and I Spit on Your Grave being so popular in the 70s and him being an idiot 19-year-old kid being like, Oh, this is what people like, <laughs> which is like, no, no one likes this. Um, no one likes this, Sam. Uh, and, and so I think that's probably why, how that ended up in the movie. It is the single thing in this entire franchise that I wish could just be removed wholesale. Like if I could just edit it so that she goes out into the woods and then you cut to her running back out of the woods. I think the movie would be better as a result and way more, you know, watchable and less embarrassing. It's something that I almost always forget about whenever I show people this movie and I'm like, oh, right. Oh, no, I forgot. To, yeah. Um, it's very cringy uh, and not great. But I think that I can I can forgive it from the perspective of like a 19 year old kid going to drive in movies with his notebook and like taking notes and seeing what people are reacting to. Um, and, and not really thinking of thinking it through, especially since, you know, it was the seventies, which yikes. Um, so, (laughs) so, um, uh, but yeah, that's what this movie was whole, this design was designed to be was just like a sort of checklist of scary shit, um, that they saw in these drive-ins and like what got the biggest reactions. And you can kind of sense that. And it's interesting that they went into it so mathematically, when you watch it and you're like, I he he did go into this mathematically, but he just can't help himself to not, you know, quote unquote, sell out. He's not 
selling out. He's just he's making a Sam Raimi movie, but he's like also checking off all of these things as he goes, which I think would would be exactly what would later bring him to the Spider-Man movies in terms of like being able to make those movies, complete that checklist for Sony and Marvel while also making it a Sam Raimi movie first and foremost. I think that he is one of the only filmmakers who is um like really really good at that. Uh, even better than Edgar Wright, you know, like Edgar Wright, you know, we learned about the whole Ant-Man thing. He had to drop out of that movie because he couldn't do the Marvel checklist and make it an Edgar Wright movie. Um, I think that Sam Raimi is like one of the only filmmakers who's capable of doing that. And I think it all started with this movie. Um, but yeah, they made it for, uh, they, they, they like went around to, they made a short film called Within the Woods, which was like a proof of concept. Um, and then they, uh, shopped it around to, uh, dentists, in the area. Um, basically they were like, who do we know that's rich? And so they went to like doctors and dentists in the area begging for money. And they eventually, um, uh, got, um, you know, a couple, a, a few hundred thousand dollars, which everyone always calls this a micro budget movie because it cost $375,000. But I feel like I need to remind people that this cost $375,000 in 1979, which was basically equivalent to like $1.5 million now. Um, not a lot of money, but not a micro-budget movie either. Um, and, and so they went out into the woods. Originally, like, they had to shoot this in the winter because the nights were longer. So they went out in, into the woods in Michigan and were like, it's too cold here. We can't shoot this in the winter in Michigan. So they drove south to Tennessee where they found the cabin and uh, that's where they shot it. And, you know, it was a grueling experience for everyone. It was a it was a terrible shooting experience. Um, you know, eventually as the as the crew and the cast whittled down, it became just Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell, who was starring and producing in the movie along with Rob. Um, but like everyone else left and they just like, you know, Sam was like pretending to be other actors in the movie, like just to get like certain shots that they needed and things. Um, and uh, eventually the budget ballooned to like 500,000 um, with um, with things like uh screenings and stuff like that to try to get people to, to buy the movie um, as it, as it went along. And then eventually um, they premiered it at Cannes out of, uh, out of, um, out of competition uh, just in the commercial sales side of Cannes. And uh, it was purchased and released in 1981, um, like 18 months after they finished it. And, uh, and, and it was released in theaters and on VHS simultaneously. So it was the first, you know, VOD theatrical release. <laughs> um, and it worked because it would sell out these midnight screenings, um, where it would screen, but then it was also like the, the most, I, I guess it ha holds an award for the most stolen VHS tape from, rental stores because people just like they wanted to own this thing um and uh and yeah and the rest is history um but this was uh this was crazy i mean they like invented shit they put the, the camera on a two by four and just like carried it through the woods um and and they would uh, uh stick it on they would put a, a piece of wood above the camera to like smash windows um before the camera arrived and things like that to get these uh these effects that sam wanted but um it's uh it's a crazy story 
um, and the details of which, you know, there's literally a book about it. So uh, you can you can read that if you want all of the ins and outs of it. But it is just a crazy, crazy story. Um, the making of this movie. I am sure at some point someone is going to make like a limited series about the making of this movie or, you know, like a, like, like the offer on Paramount for the Godfather, but for the evil dead, I'm sure that's going to happen at some point. Um, but, uh, it hasn't yet. And there's not really a definitive documentary about it or anything like that. Um, which I was surprised by, uh, searching this. There's lots of like special features, but, um, all of the special features, none of them feature Sam talking about it. Uh, which I always think is weird, and it and Bruce Campbell in all of these always seems like cornered, like like they caught him, like the documentary crew went into like a con where he's like doing like pictures, and they're just like, can you answer some questions about the Evil Dead real quick? Like it, he always feels like very cornered about it. Um, in all of these uh, special features, it's very very odd. Um, but uh, it's uh anyway. Um, I wish there was like there should be a definitive documentary, but there hasn't been. I hope um, one day. I feel like. One day there will be. Yeah, you would think so. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think there's a documentary centered on the fandom. That I tried out. watching it today. It was I I could only get like ten minutes in. Um, it was rough. They didn't have any of the they didn't have the rights to any of the footage from the movies. So all of the footage in the for for the movies were all fan remakes. Huh. So every yeah every time they like cut to like Evil Dead, it's like Evil Dead colon the fan remake and it'll be like footage from that and i'm like okay interesting that's rough <laughs> yeah yeah it was it was a rough watch I, I i was like okay i'm not getting anything out of this unfortunately <laughs> but um anyway yeah um so how do we want to go through this movie nick is there <laughs> the plot is minimal i would say yeah you know i'm uh listeners i i take notes uh you know, in, in in movies where I do like the plot walkthrough and my notes for evil that are really cool because they're all like one word, you uh-huh. know, like road, yeah. bridge, yeah, eyes. I think you might have just recreated the script um, mm-hmm. <laughs> for evil dead. And uh, and that's something. Yeah. And that's something that I find. So I know we'll, 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 we'll talk about it. I have a lot. Yeah. To, but so we, uh, we we start with this really iconic tracking shot. Of, as you said earlier, Scott, Sam Raimi weaponizes the camera mm-hmm. and creates the, you know, the creature, the force is behind the camera and we can only hear its breath and this like cacophony of voices as it like speeds through this like, des- you know, gray woods. Mm-hmm. The thing that I'm I'm so interested by with the rules of this first movie, because a lot of people, I think, incorrectly lump this into zombie films, which it's not a zombie film. It has more in common with The Exorcist than with, you know, Night of the Living Dead. Um, and uh, uh, what's interesting is, like, it seems to me that they read from the book and then that awakens the spirits and then they start getting possessed one by one through injuries, um, it seems, is how it works. Um Injuries sustained by one of the possessed things. Um, but you're right. This movie opens with the evil dead shot. 
And so it's like, so are they already awake? Are they already like doing stuff or like what, what does the book allow them reading the book, allow them to do that? They're not already doing like roaming through the woods. Any thoughts? I've always interpreted as like the deadites, I think are there. They're kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, under, under the surface, they're kind of Mm -hmm. waiting Mm -hmm. to kind of be awoken. And it's when, because I've always taken it as the words have to be said out loud. And mm-hmm. so that's when they play the tape recorder. And that's when the deadites actually get to kind of wake up. Uh-huh. Um, but they're sort of there under the surface, just waiting, just waiting for someone yeah. to, to play that tape. And then, of course, these two dumb Michigan University students <laughs> say, hey, look at this creepy book and look at this creepy tape recorder. What if we play that? I'll be, yeah. I'll be perfectly honest. I, I'll be perfectly honest. 10 out of 10, I would have played that tape without oh, a doubt. Same. 100%. <laughs> and, How uh, can you not? And on, yeah. And Anya, what I think is so great about that answer, as well as Scott's question, is watching this movie, I kind of kept picturing myself as if I were writing this. Mm-hmm. And how often I would have stopped myself or policed myself from making decisions that this movie makes Mm -hmm. Um, because I have now successfully spent 30 years talking myself out of directing a movie. Sure. Mostly out of fear of making an an imperfect thing. Yeah. And this movie is like willfully imperfect. Yeah. And it even like the first shot is like, well, this doesn't make any sense. They're not supposed to be awake yet. But <laughs> your answer is like really sound and like made by someone who loves this movie and has watched it tons of times. Yeah. Yeah. It feels, yeah. I feel like it feels imperfect because it almost feels instinctual. It feels like Sam is just doing the things that his gut is just telling him to do. And mm-hmm. then he's not taking that moment, like you said, Nick, to like stop and like police himself or think about it. He's just saying, well, this. Like, this would happen then. This makes sense. This happens in horror films. Like you said, the checklist. And he just lets himself go. And it's mm-hmm. honestly incredible to see because there is so much policing normally. And with this, we have this, like, beautiful, messy film that someone just allowed themselves to make as they envisioned it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, like, a naivete to this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh for better or for worse, because like you said, Scott, this was a grueling, really difficult shoot that mm-hmm. was oftentimes unsafe for everyone on set. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there is a, a there is like another side to that. But also, you know, people are like, how do you make a movie when you're 21? And it's like, I think you just will it to happening and you don't give a shit and you just keep going. I- the one thing, the two things that they had going for them, I think, with this was like one, they had actual money. Now people they had a million say, dollars. <laughs> yeah, people will say like, no, they didn't have. There was hardly any money, you know, whatever. But but like these people were getting paid to be working on this thing, right? Mm. That's uh, huge, um, just right off the bat. Because like you look at Clerks, none of those people got paid to be in that movie, right? Like they all got paid after he sold it. Um, 
So that is more of like a bunch of friends just being like, you know what? Let's do this. Let's make a movie. This was like, mm-hmm. we're hiring actors and like, this is a legitimate production, even though it's not going to feel legitimate once we're out there. Um, uh, but you know, uh, so, so they had a bunch of people who were like willing to do the work and, and show up and, and do the thing. One of my favorite stories though is, um, the actress who plays, uh, is it Shelly? Um, is that her name? Yeah, Shelley. Yeah, um, Scott's who, girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Who is uh, played by in in the film uh, Teresa Tilly? Um, she is credited as Sarah York, and it's my favorite story. Is that the reason that she changed her name for the movie was because literally the day before they went out to shoot the movie, she'd already agreed to be in it. She'd signed the contracts and everything. She got her SAG card. And this was not a union production, and so she had to change her name because she was like. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to like back out. I promised them I would do it, but like, I'll change my name. No one's ever going to see this movie anyway. So like SAG's never going to find out. It's no, not a big deal. Um, and they suspended her for six months, uh, because she was in a non-union production as a union actress. Um, but, uh, yeah. But now Uh, she gets evil dead on her IMDb. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who, who won in the long run? It's true. It'll work that. Uh, Anya, I have a question. Were you already, the first time you watched this, were you aware that Ash was the final girl of the movie, that he would be the last one standing? I was, yeah. So, like, and the Ash that I knew was Evil Dead 2 Ash. Like, I remember watching the Evil Dead waiting for his arm to be chopped off. I was, like, waiting for that. I was, like, that's the Ash I know from people who love it and its reputation and so when watching the evil dead and that never happened and ash kind of never became this larger than life final girl like a little bit towards the end but you know still relatively reined in compared to evil dead 2 and army of darkness (laughs) yeah um i was a little surprised but i knew that you know he was the protagonist that we follow throughout the entire franchise um but this was not the ash i was expecting Mm mm-hmm yeah yeah it the, it's the same thing with uh, please oh i was just gonna say the interesting thing about the chainsaw about the about the cutting off his hand and everything it that's so interesting about this movie is like it's almost as if they know they're going to make evil dead too because you're watching this and there's a bunch of moments that feel like foreshadowing <laughs> like that when he when he grabs the chainsaw in the shed to like cut up his girlfriend um and there's like there's a, a, a isn't there a part where a hand gets like veiny and stuff um yeah so like yeah it's just like these there's these little like weird foreshadowing things that are foreshadows to nothing because they have no idea that they're going to make another one of these but i just it, it's so funny watching the whole series now um, knowing what comes later and you're like they had i think they are stuff cooking in the back of sam raimi's head of like other stuff they could do but they can't because they don't have the budget for it this time or whatever um but he is he seems to be interested in particular things that then would become uh more important later on <clears throat> i think there's like there's a i think another reason this does have such a strong fan base and kind of like a is a positive fan you know, thing for a lot of people is there's like there's such an element of destiny to these movies and yes. like romance. Like the story of Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell is like very romantic. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, completely. Like, I mean, talk about your friends being just as important as any romantic partner. Mm-hmm. You yeah, don't say Sam like, Raimi without also saying Bruce Campbell. 
Def- and like, you know, we've all had those friends in high school that we like watched movies with and can kind of relate to that. So the idea of that being like your muse and like delivers such a like strong performance in this movie as well as the other ones. And like, you know, became like, it was just exactly what Sam needed or who Sam needed to make this movie. And they just happened to go to high school together and we're best friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, but I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like this movie kind of the way I do about alien where like I can never watch, I was never able to watch alien not knowing that Ripley made it all the way through to the end. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate because I think they do a really good job of like, Ash does not seem like he's going to be the one who makes it out of this. Yeah. Like he's very like meek and kind of, he's like, he's the dude with the map and he's like, Oh, where well, we could take a left. What's here. interesting though, about the concept. I mean, this is not something that I think they were, they were thinking about or whatever, but you know, as as we do when we look back at at films and and think about them uh, critically and and all of that stuff, um, and analyze them, I think the thing that's interesting about Ash being the final girl in this, and they deal with it a little bit in Ash versus Evil Dead, but it's just the fact that like, if this scenario happens and it ends with a woman being the last survivor, everyone is like, wow. Great job. You survived this horrible attack where all your friends tried to murder you or whatever. And you did what you had to to survive. Good for you. As soon as you make this a man, that dude is going to prison forever. Forever. Because there, no one is going to believe that those people attacked him. They're going to think that he just murdered all of these women and his best friend. Um, and so he has everything to lose. And so there's that other layer of like uncomfortableness with him being the final girl the final character because it's not going to end well for him there's like no scenario where he gets to have a happy ending at the end of all of this um you know the tv show you know give him gives him his hometown gives him the nickname um ashy ashy slashy ashy ashy slashy ash ashy slashy um which is uh yeah it's a bummer <laughs> like it's a bummer that that's like he he's like no you don't understand how the hell that i went through but ever no one believes him and they just think that he's a crazy serial killer um and that would be reality except that he wouldn't be free i think he would be in prison forever um which is unfortunate so i just i think that's interesting but it's only this specific scenario where that would happen where they're all out in a cabin in the woods by themselves, right? Any other scenario, I think it would you could you could interchange them and it's less interesting if the guy is the last person alive. But in this very specific scenario, I think it is more interesting that it's that it's Ash. What you just said reminded me, it sounds if you guys are Stranger Things fans, it's that's basically Eddie. Yeah. In this past season is immediately yeah. right saying The luckiest well, boy in Hawkins. This, right. This this young man clearly must be like an evil like person, yeah. like running right. a cult and all these things. <laughs> and they would absolutely say the same thing about Ash. I mean, yeah. you would not believe that it was deadites. You would say, no, sir, you're going to no. prison. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because by the time anyone um, got out there, all the deadite-ness would have been melted from them. And so that's just a bunch of chopped up dead bodies. He went crazy and killed everybody, obviously. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah. I'd believe it. Yeah, right. Yeah. More than the no, Deadites. Yeah. Oh, what? That's the one thing. 
one thing this movie might be missing is a is a is a what the heck happened here sheriff moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the last scene in X. Yeah. 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 Um uh, so we come to one of the great bridges in, in movie history, I think. It's a it's a heck of a bridge. Yeah. Um and uh, when is you know, watching like the the crew interact in the car in these opening scenes, I really never understood before people calling this movie camp. Mm. Um, but watching it this time, I really did get like the like Rocky Horror, like mm-hmm. you know, these are just four kind of decent Midwesterners that are about to <laughs> drive into unimaginable hell. Yeah. Um, I like the call out that the cabin is shitty, though. Like, I like that they're like, wait, wait, what do you mean the cabin's shitty? It's shitty. You're <laughs> sending us to a shitty cabin. What kind of vacation is this? Like, I just, I love that uh, aspect of it. Um, uh, college kids are are dumb, and they'll go anywhere. They they'll they'll drive sixteen hours to get drunk in a cabin. Um, in like a shitty cabin. This cabin apparently didn't even have plumbing. Uh, when they got there, they had to like put the plumbing in. Um, uh, the limited plumbing that they had. Uh, it was uh, yeah, it was a rough time. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's bad. I would never do this. Uh. That's the thing. Would I would I play the tape? Absolutely. But I would never be there to begin with. So <laughs> I would never be able to make that decision. I would never go out to like some shitty cabin in the oh god. This this is a it's like a shack. Um it's like it's like a four bedroom shack. Uh so such a weird situation that they're that they're entering into. And any cabin with a creepy basement, I just mm-hmm. would be like Maybe not this one. Yeah. I was going to say, not... Anya, what, what, what did you think of the bone room? Uh, <laughs> uh, not. Not my fave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do we make of the bone, the, the, the bones hanging from, from the ceiling by twine? What do we make of that now that, you know, like who, who, who put that, who made that, do you think? I've always... The, yeah, the bones hanging. I've always kind of hoped it was a really subtle callback to Within the Woods. Um, in that, when that character, when that Bruce character says that they're like on Indian burial ground mm. and, oh. you know, it's I've cursed or it. something. Um, and I'm really glad that that's not part of the Evil Dead franchise because I feel like there's just a lot of potential there to get into appropriation mm-hmm. and bad sure. things mm-hmm. right yeah, um yeah. but for me like that just kind of feels like one of those old like folksy kind of curses right. um that they reference in within the woods and i don't know if it actually means anything in this film or if it's just like a yeah. fun design element because it just makes it creepier yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, that goes back to kind of what we said a few minutes ago of like, I would have like, oh, wait, no, but who would have made that? I would have to, they would have to find a thing to like explain what made like, no, they're, they're just up there. It's cool. Yeah. Right. It's a haunted house movie. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you don't need yeah. to explain it, which is really delightful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we get kind of the first big scare of the movie. Um, is it Shelly that is like drawing and sees the clock? Um. No, that's uh It's Cheryl. It's uh Ash's Cheryl. sister. Cheryl. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Where uh a reoccur- the first of a reoccurring motif in this series, her hand is possessed. 
and we can see oh, that yeah, her there, hand is there's like, the hand possession. I knew I remembered a hand possession. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it like, you know, draws and like goes through the paper and it's all in like, you know, the idea of like her not being in control of your body of like your hand for a little bit. Yeah. Which would definitely get uh, <laughs> accelerated in the next film. Um, and it kind of speaks to that showmanship, the showmanship that y'all have been talking about where like, you know, we're three minutes into the movie and already boom, scare. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, Sam um, is throwing you in. There's mm-hmm. no, there's mm-hmm. no lovely little buildup in this film. Right. There's no like ten minutes of them all like, hey, we've known each other since freshman year. You know, like. Right. I think about the cabin in the woods. You know, Chris mm-hmm. Hemsworth and stuff, and you meet them like getting ready for the road trip and at college, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you get to kind of see their personalities, and everything is great. And mm-hmm. I think of most horror films, I feel like you have that really positive opening and it's like mm-hmm. everything is normal and fine. And mm-hmm. with this one, it is immediately not fine. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, yeah. even before <laughs> the um, possession, I think when they first get to the cabin, the like porch swing is like moving. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And yeah. the Donnie um, Darko so scene. Just, <laughs> mm-hmm. And so well, immediately the, it's like everything about. is wrong here. Nothing is yeah. going to go well here. You're right. Yeah. Even when they're in the car, like you said, they're like, wait, it's a, wait, it's a shitty cabin? Like they're, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> if that doesn't spell out horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I think it is interesting because, you know, I think most horror films tend to, like you said, you have that opening that's like happy and everything. And they're trying to like make you care about the characters before the scary stuff happens. Whereas this is like, you're not going to care about any of these people except Ash. And you're not going to even care about him until he's the last one standing. Like that's how we're going to structure this, which I just think is so ballsy. (laughs) It's It's funny because I think almost unintentionally they do try and give Ash a little bit of character, I think I always think about is I think it is in this one I believe with the necklace that he wants to give, yeah, Linda, mm-hmm. um, and I find Bruce Campbell as Ash extremely endearing. I think himbo is the perfect word for him in that he's really kind of a sweetheart, um, you know, a typical man in the seventies, especially, yeah. um, little bit of a chauvinist at times, but yeah. Still very sweet and endearing, especially in contrast to Scott, who is just insufferable. And (laughs) even if they didn't know Ash was going to lead this entire franchise, it's interesting because I feel like the Ash we see in Ash vs. the Evil Dead, and I'm a big fan of the Star series. I think the Star series expanded on the franchise in a way that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. But I think that Ash we see in that series, the growth of him, I can trace back to the Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. Even if they never were thinking that far ahead, it feels like Ash has remained consistent and grown as this sort of, you know, doing his best hero that's not really all that smart, um, but is certainly scrappy and able to fight his way out of anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I was a big, I really loved that little moment between him and Linda it was almost like something from a Chaplin film mm-hmm. where like they start playing that little game with their eyes and then they're like ah you know yeah yeah and- there there is one bit 
uh, later on in the movie that I feel like was a missed opportunity because they do it a little bit. But like, so they play this game with their eyes where they're both like, she's like looking at him and he shuts his eyes and then she looks away and he opens his eyes again um, with the, with the box of the, with the necklace, this, this stupid magnifying glass necklace, which is. Just... Oh, it is the worst necklace of all time. <laughs> My it's favorite awful. Part... My favorite part is that she looks at herself in the mirror and she's holding it in her hand so she can't see the magnifying glass part. And she's like, it's beautiful. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, when you don't have to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, they're playing that game and it's like really sweet and like a like a cute little like young couple thing. And then later when she is uh, she's been possessed and he's out in the in, you know, in front and he's like trying to bury her and she's acting like she's dead. Right. I wish they had played the game again. But now it's actually scary where like he he looks away and she opens her eyes and then he looks back and she closes her eyes and pretends to be dead. Like you could have played it again. And I think it would have been a really fun callback, but they don't quite get there. And I think it's just. I, I feel like Sam was trying to do it, but it was like either they had run long that day or something. Um, I don't know. But uh, I could sense that he was wanting to do it and it just didn't quite work the way he had wanted it to. Um, but uh, it's a it's it's a it's a really fun scene. It's it's a favorite of um, my wife's. My wife loves that stupid scene. Like she it just she cracks up because it's just it's so cheesy and but sweet. But, like, it's just such a dorky – because it's so intense. Like, her – the intense close-up of her eyes, like, darting back and forth when it's just, like, this stupid, silly scene of, like, him trying to, like, catch her uh, taking the necklace out of his hand. Um, But, yeah, my wife loves it. She just thinks it's so silly. It is silly, and that's what makes it work. I think – I can't imagine anyone else but Bruce Campbell playing Ash Williams. No. Because he's – so handsome especially back when he was younger i mean he still is but (laughs) bruce campbell was so classic so classically handsome you Mm -hmm. know i mean the chin the the Mm -hmm. dark thick hair he had a good smile he was very charismatic and charming and i remember um i don't know if this was in his book or in an interview but he talked about how he had never really been into horror or done horror before this he considered himself more of a comedy guy Mm-hmm. And I think bringing those sensibilities to the character works so well because Ash is, like you said, a dork. He's yeah. kind of a massive dork. Yeah. But that's what makes you root for him is because he is sweet and, you know, not the smartest one. But he cares <laughs> about his girlfriend, you know. And I know the film doesn't go too deep into, like, characters or anything like that. But I think, again, the seeds are planted here for the ash that we see grow over the years, the ash who ends up caring deeply for other people. Um, yeah. Which is not, again, not the point of this film in particular, but you can see where it begins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If if Bruce what? Campbell hadn't come up in the 80s, where everything was hyper-masculine, like, you know, Stallone was like 1.5% body fat and Arnold Schwarzenegger and all of these guys, right? If that's not when he had started becoming an actor and it, Hollywood had been able to know what to do with him, he could have been like a proto Brendan Fraser um, because that's definitely yes. his energy where he's like he's super pretty. He's so pretty, but 
he's a dork. Like he's an absolute dork. Um, and, and if, if Hollywood had known what to do with him, man, he could have been one of our biggest movie stars. I, I truly believe that. And I think 100%. it's, uh, and I think what's kind of, you know, we're talking about like the endearingness of the character that it's that dichotomy of watching this, like, comic tramp like character like almost like old hollywood type of like you know movie star because also like a big influence for both Raimi and campbell were like three stooges and like abbott and costello and like the comedy hero and then you're watching this like guy just get ragdolled around and like surviving these eldritch horrors and this extreme gore and stuff and just watching him get bloodied up as the movie goes on and i think that is he's like he's a really engaging protagonist to watch yeah yeah, I think he gets thrown into every shelf in this cabin <laughs> over the course of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> if not this um, one, and... then especially the second one. Yes, absolutely. Right, he, ca- he catches like the rest of them. Yeah. And so uh, the cellar door opens, they go inside, they find the Necronomicon, which is still such a beautiful prop. Yeah, I I think it's at its best looking in the second one. Um, mm-hmm. I really don't like the Army of Darkness Necronomicon. Um, it's like f- flat. I don't know. It, it's like they tried too hard. I was like, no, no, no. You guys got this. You nailed it in the second one. You don't need to t- redo it again. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I do like this one. I like how ugly it is. Like it is very believably made out of human skin because it's just so like slapdash to get like the cover just looks disgusting. It's just so vile to look at. When I think of iconic horror, like imagery, the Necronomicon is up there for me with the lament configuration from Hellraiser. Those Mm -hmm. are probably my two favorite like props in a horror film that you just see a picture of them, Mm -hmm. no other context. And it evokes everything about the franchise and it's like just a visceral kind of feeling that these props give there's there's something really weighty behind them absolutely uh remember the uh the dvd i think of the old ed 2 that was the necronomicon yep yep i had it and um like for many people uh they i think anchor bay made those and they did not think through the material that they used to make it. Um, and it rotted. Uh, it rotted. Everyone's copy of this rotted um, because <laughs> the the latex just broke down. And it's, yeah, I eventually had to throw mine out. It was, it was bad. It like smelled bad. It was bad. Um, I can't tell was... if that's poetic or not. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel like it, it's almost like a business strategy at this point because how many copies of the Evil Dead have they made everybody buy? <laughs> right. Yeah, they're like, well, this one's only going to last 10 years, and then they'll have to buy another one. You have to buy the Blu-ray. The DVD ate itself. <laughs> yeah. It's actually smart. The DVD itself uh, became a deadite and just... Yeah. <laughs> it started, it was like Nightmare Before Christmas. Like, it started like... Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then they find the, you know, the the famous recording. And it's like, you know, going back to, you know, Cheryl's hand, and now this recording it's like doing a lot with a little Mm -hmm. like he creates a whole little world in this recording of this explorer that finds this ancient sumerian temple and like you know lives with this tribe out in the jungle is Mm -hmm. that what it you know yeah i'm very curious if anyone if there's like a fan podcast like evil dead podcast that is like 
like a like a you know uh like one of those like found footage podcasts that they that they make they made that um Netflix show last year uh or earlier this year that was like based on a on a podcast that was like all like found video and stuff um archive archive 81 I, it's a, yeah yeah um yeah but like i'm surprised no one i i shouldn't say i don't want to say surprised because somebody will just be like, oh yeah there's like seven of these um but like yeah just the idea of like of like found audio podcast that's like an evil dead themed like found audio podcast um i'm i'm so i i bet if that hasn't happened i'm sure that it probably will at some point because it feels like a like a like a like a given. I don't know because it feels like those creepy horror found audio podcasts. Um, this uh, this tape. It reminds me of Bioshock. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's a little bit of that in there. Absolutely. Um, I'm sure. surprised no one's made like a Prometheus or pitched like a Prometheus style prequel about like this expedition and like finding the book. I am sure someone has. And I feel that I, too. And my guess is that because Sam owns the rights to everything and has to approve any sequel or remake or whatever, I mm. my guess is that he's just said no. Like, we don't mm. need to see that. Um, and he's he's right. <laughs> I think he's right, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I love Prometheus, interesting. though. But, but, but if somebody pitched him a podcast that was that, I bet he would be more open to it. That would be my mm. guess. I... Uh... And then, uh, okay, we, we are, so that, oh, that's actually, that's funny. That's before the Ash necklace scene that we already talked about. Yeah. Um, so uh, Shelly, Cheryl is mm-hmm. the first to go crazy and uh, and she runs out into the vines and, you know, it's just, it's very like juvenile. It's mm-hmm. just like, and it's also kind of like a through line of this movie kind of going forward. When I think of like the gore and the pain, I think this is Raimi's meanest film. Yes. Yeah. There's and like there, and not only that, but I think it's Raimi at his just meanest because like there's like a story about how Bruce Campbell sprains his ankle in this movie. And then like every every time like Sam wanted to get like a shocked expression on Bruce's face, he would poke his sprained ankle off camera to like get him to react. And he just thought it was the funniest thing. But he's like 20 and you know, 20 year olds are fucking mean to each other. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and it's like, uh, yeah, I just, I think he just, yeah, he was just mean. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, you've talked about this a little bit already, Scott, but yeah, I agree. If I could take out the tree rape scene, it would be removed from every iteration of this movie because it is yeah. unnecessary. It's exploitative. It's gratuitous. Yeah. It's, it's so cruel to the character of Cheryl for no reason. You know, I always think there's a moment where she tries to cover herself up again while the tree is attacking her and the tree, one of the branches specifically like rips her hand away from her clothes. So she can't like protect or cover herself. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about Sam Raimi feeling like he had to prove something with this film. Um, And it goes to this, it goes to him antagonizing Bruce Campbell you know, he was seeing other filmmakers were doing these rape revenge films and including sexual violence against women. And, you know, he was 19 making this, you know, 20. And he was a dumb kid. And he also felt like this was his chance to to kind of make it big, to, to break into something. And everyone else was doing this. And he had to, he was willing to do whatever it took to mm-hmm. kind of 
get the film that he wanted to. And I think it's a testament to him that he now regrets it. And mm-hmm. I'm very glad. I feel like I would have a different feeling about this franchise and about Sam Raimi as the director if he didn't regret it. It, it makes me glad to know that he he kind of grew up and realized that was wrong. And it's why I personally, one of the reasons I do not like the remake because of that they included it again mm-hmm. for absolutely no reason. And it really did, doesn't add anything. It's, uh, I, I have a story to tell about that when we get to it in a few weeks. Um, but it's essentially one producer who was like, can't have Evil Dead without the tree rape. That's the whole That's- movie. That's what I read, and yeah. I I hate that because Sam yeah. has already said that he would take it out if he could. He wouldn't have done it. So it's clearly not that essential to the film. Yeah. And I think, right, like you said, if you just, I think, Nick, you said this, just cut to Cheryl running in the woods and then her coming back. And it's almost scarier to imagine yep. what she went through in the woods than actually showing it because then that just is cruel and... I don't, Sam Raimi was too young to know about gender politics and the actual, like, what the impact of this scene was going to have on people, particularly women. And he wasn't thinking about that. Right, right. And he wasn't a horror fan. So he was coming to it scientifically, right? Like, he didn't know what he liked in horror because horror wasn't a thing that he was into at all. So he was just scientifically watching these movies as research and writing down the things that got reactions to make a movie that scientifically got the biggest reactions. And so we end up with this, which is so if if yeah. horror wasn't like a, a genre that he grew up wanting to make, what like. What was like the genesis? Was it just like, oh, you can make hard. Like, what was the genesis behind behind this being his first movie? Because um, he had seen people, he had seen uh, very cheaply made horror films become, make their directors like big name directors, you know, like Wes Craven and things like that. Romero. Yeah. So he had seen a trajectory. And so Mm -hmm. he was like, this is what I start with because I can't make a comedy at the budget level that I can make a horror film and have an audience still enjoy it. Right. Um, and so I think that was, that was his thought process at the time. That's interesting. Yeah. Gosh, it's all calculated. Everything was calculated. And it's crazy. Cause this is like the ultimate, this is like the most horror movie, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, that was, that was the thing. He was like, if I'm going to do it, yeah. like I'm going to make the most horror movie. This is yeah, this is the most horror movie. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but still with that, that camp sensibility and that comedy, you can see that his background is in something different and that mm-hmm. he brings that to this. Um, I think it was you, Nick, maybe who said that you saw some of the Rocky horror in it. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, within the woods, the proof of concept that he made before this, he convinced a theater, a local theater to air his short film within the woods with a screening of Rocky horror. Mm. And so you can see that there, all these threads we're picking up were there and they were intentional and they, what we're seeing, what we're getting from the film was definitely the reality for Sam Raimi. He was, you know, that camp, that comedy, with yeah. that horror and that over the top. That's so interesting. Cause even Rocky horror was itself calling upon and referencing 
you know, a, its generation of sci-fi and horror, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, just the archetype of, like, you know, the squares from the suburbs driving out into the woods or Transylvania, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. So so Cheryl does run back to the cabin and then, like, like just, like, Ash, drive me home now. And Ash is like, I don't believe you, but okay. I will, <laughs> you know, like... Well, I'll, I'll do it. Like, we're not going to yeah. like, yeah, okay. An and extremely so, important decision that that character makes for him to be like, likable. Yes. Yes. That's a good yeah. point. I mean, especially in horror movies before and after Evil Dead, you know, there's such like a trope of like, oh, you've gone crazy. Lock her in a room or like. Yeah. Right. I don't believe you. And then a person who doesn't believe them ends up, that ends up being their biggest mistake because then that usually ends up getting them killed. But yeah. Ash you know, might be critical or might be skeptical. Who wouldn't be, you know, really? Yeah. And that's so cool. You know, we've, you know, we've called Ash a final girl a few times in this episode. And, you know, the lineage of the final girl, when I think about like Sydney Prescott, you know, we covered the the Scream movies. You believe that Sydney is the one to make it to the end of that first movie because of her empathy as, as well as her survival skills. And those are attributes that we see Ash having. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He does talk her out of going home and just going into town, though. Uh, I will say, because right. at first she's like, I want to go home. And she's like, I'm not driving you 16 hours in the middle of the night. Like, <laughs> she's like, fine, just get take me to town. And he's like, OK, I'll take you to town. Fine, I'll take you to town. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> That's like what Anya said. Was he still just like a, a regular dude? But... Right. Yeah, absolutely. He has his um, but the fact of... that he's willing to drive her to town to like a motel or something at yeah. all is... Right. It really says something. Yeah. But if mm-hmm. he had succeeded, they'd have a whole other mess on their hands because she is absolutely possessed at this point. She just doesn't know it yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's honestly yeah. probably good that the bridge is out because <laughs> yeah. then they're just releasing deadites into the world. <laughs> yes, indeed. Can I? So these two movies, it's like a dream. It's like trying to remember two separate dreams. Like, I could have sworn that I remember that big crazy shot of the bridge being blown out. You that's, know? Yeah. And I'm like, that's the Evil Dead 2. Because in this yeah. one, you just see like the close-up of the sign on the ground. Well, and the thing with that is is it's it is very dreamlike in that way, which is like, you know, I I'll, I'll really go, I'll really hammer this home next week when we talk about Evil Dead 2. But one of my biggest like dorky nerdy pet peeves is when people call evil dead Two a remake of the of evil dead drives me absolutely <laughs> fucking bananas because i'm like no there's legitimately it is a recap of the first movie and then it starts evil dead 2 right where evil dead left off like immediately um but that recap remake area of 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 evil dead 2 the first like i don't know 15 minutes or whatever 10 15 minutes um it is very dreamlike when you compare in your memory, when you can think about Evil Dead, because you're you're sort of merging them both in your head, you know, because it's like the same events, but played out slightly differently um, with different shots. And so it's all just sort of mixing around like a soup in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I was constantly doing that where I was like, is that amazing shot where he shovels the dirt into the hole and it's only the spot where his face is left is that that they got by accident is that in this movie or is that in evil dead 2 like i just couldn't remember but yeah stuff like that 
Absolutely. I was having that same conversation with my wife right before we recorded, you know, recalling events from the first one compared to the second one. And I was like, well, no wonder I'm getting them confused. They're kind of just a remake. But then I was like, but they're not. I mean, Linda is dead at the beginning of The Evil Dead 2. And that is a significant moment for Ash. And that right. informs a lot of his decisions and his character. And it's not right just a remake of it. Like the events of The Evil Dead 2 follow Linda's death and right. are important mm-hmm. but i think the the same setting the bridge you mm-hmm. know uh, some of the deadite shots are similar and so there is sort of that yeah hazy dreamlike yeah. quality as i'm sure and i feel like it's intentionally disorienting um because i feel like the best horror movies are somewhat disorienting if you're in the the head of the protagonist you know for ash so much is happening all the time <laughs> in this cabin yeah and what happened yesterday versus today for him so it almost you know works in that it kind of gets us on his level of what is happening in this cabin and haven't we gone through this (laughs) there's also this really interesting element of like so this movie came out in 1981 but it was shot in the winter of 79 into 80 right i think they wrapped in like january or february of 80 And so you have this movie made in the 70s, you have the sequel that's made in the 80s, and then you have Army of Darkness, which is made in the 90s. And as a result of each one happening so far past the last one, Ash goes from a college kid in this one to an S-smart manager in the third one, right? And it's this weird, like, sort of, they have to keep remaking the beginning, the prologue, the recap every time, not just because they don't have the rights to the previous film anymore, but also because like he's not no one's going to believe that Ash William, that Bruce Campbell is a college kid in, in Army of Darkness. Right. So they have to keep pushing the timeline forward, kind of like what they've done with The Simpsons, where they started off as boomers, Homer and Marjorie boomers. Then they became Gen X and now they're millennials. Um, they keep having to like push nudge the timeline forward and that is also happening over the course of these three movies which i also think is really interesting but yeah uh i hate it with the simpsons though yeah (laughs) yeah no it's terrible with the simpsons works a little better here yeah yeah to 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 rami's credit (laughs) so they head back to the cabin cheryl goes full deadite we get our first deadite Mm -hmm. the first deadite Mm -hmm. um and like the first thing I think of is the the pencil to the shin, yes, or the 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 ankle, the Achilles tendon, yeah. the Achilles tendon. And uh-huh. you know, you know, Ebert <laughs> said that cinema is an empathy machine, mm-hmm. and Raimi is such a master at twisting that empathy into <laughs> you know, think about the nails on the floor in Spider Man Two. Mm-hmm. He just has a sixth sense of knowing how to make people do what Scott just did. You know, that like, oh, oh, no, I can imagine what that feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that by this point, I think I think right before the pencil, maybe Ash makes a choice to listen to more of the tapes. Yes. And that's how he learns the only way to kill a deadite is to dismember them. Right. Mm-hmm. And again, another another point in ash's column he's he might be a himbo but at least he's a resourceful himbo mm-hmm. at least he thought maybe yeah these tapes are pretty pretty scary and they woke up these demons but maybe they'll have some useless information or useful information on them and they do and so 
you know, he gets that key information to help him become the final girl. Yeah, it's you brought it up on you. It's almost like you need Scott to emphasize how much better, you know, Ash is in comparison. Yeah, because Scott is just he's the worst. <laughs> I I do not like that character. I'm so happy when he dies every time oh. I watch this film. Terrible. He's not great in the in the the remake either. He's like the worst no. character in the remake as well. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> That's just Scott's destiny. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> Horrible character. So they get Cheryl into the, the the basement and then we get the iconic part where again the camera becomes the enemy and mm-hmm. it's become Cheryl's POV. And we have Linda being like her eyes, like what happened to her eyes? And it's you know, it's you know, great. All, all, a lot of these, a lot of the like special effects in this movie, I I I'm always like, oh yeah, like you know, they they have like a like a fake leg there, and she's hiding her other leg um, behind her real leg, and uh, and and you know, and things like that, and like you know, the floorboards, you know, they they explain how there's like three people under there, each like sticking one arm or one leg up to like wiggle around. Um, but the one element of this that I'm always just like, how did they do this out in the middle of the woods in in you know 1979, um, in the middle of winter when the ground would have been hard, is the bit where when when they first play the tape and you cut outside and there's like the ground like lifts up and glows red. I'm like, how are a bunch of kids? And like, I don't know a bunch of like, you know, kids just like go out and like make that happen. Like I, I'm always like very interested in, in how that worked out. Um, I think about that a lot. Uh, that, uh, that section of it. It's the one part that I'm like, I would have liked to have been on set that day to see how they figured out how to do that. But yeah, cause everything else, they had like a special effects guy for like the makeup stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, that specifically, I don't know. Um, I'm just thinking about how hard ground is in in the, mm-hmm. the winter time in the Midwest. Well, and thank goodness for the makeup guy because <clears throat> another one of my favorite stories. I really love Within the Woods. I think it's such a fun. Um, that's mm-hmm. why I keep bringing it up. But there's a story from that that Bruce Campbell, the makeup he had to wear for in the wood for Within the Woods, the various times they had to shoot and what he like looked like at various times. They were like. It's just better if you sleep with your makeup on instead of taking it off and reapplying it. And Bruce Campbell in his book uh, says that he wore that makeup so much for like 24-7 that it permanently kind of altered, permanently temporarily altered his face. He like, his face was affected by the makeup sitting (laughs) on his face for so long. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, as, (laughs) as much as The Evil Dead was a hellish production... Hopefully they learned a little bit from within the woods. Well, except that the guy, uh, I, I listened to an interview with him where he was like, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, I knew how to make, like, props. But, like, <laughs> putting makeup on people's faces was different from, like, doing a prop. And so, like, I was used to working with acrylics. And what you are absolutely not supposed to do is put acrylics on people's skin. Um, okay, it says so maybe it on, they didn't get much better. Yeah, it says it on every on everything. So he was like, at the end of each of each day, when I was I was taking their makeup off, I was doing it with like a Brillo pad because, like, there was no way to get the acrylic off their skin. Um, so just gotta exfoliate that yeah. whole layer of skin. Pretty yeah, much. Um, horrifying. I want to <laughs> I want to take the time to say to listeners, uh, announce I, I'm going to be acting in a horror film in the autumn. 
Yeah. And uh, and so watching this movie, I was like making a checklist of like, okay, like that person gets blood all over them or that person gets makeup. So I've just been hearing all these stories about like <laughs> disfigurement and like rashes. And I'm like, oh boy, I hope I don't get one of those. I hope I get someone who knows what they're doing. Definitely feel like we've come a long way, but. Definitely. Yeah. Be prepared. Look at face off. You never know. Like face off. <laughs> I mean, I always remember. Um, John Reese Davies is Gimli in Lord of the Rings had a reaction to the prosthetics. Yes. And it's yeah. like you just never know. Yep. Right. Yeah. And man, and then I don't know, not to get on that tangent, but you know, you go to the Hobbit and the dwarves barely have any prosthetics on. I always picture John Reese Davies watching that. <laughs> just <laughs> just bitter. Like, just like awkward. how dare so, they? Yeah. <laughs> Those dwarves um, had it easy. And then, you know, there's a letterboxed review of this of this that calls Evil Dead like machine gun phantasmagoria mm-hmm. and because i'm trying to think of and it's just as like this moment after moment you know because we get like we're gonna get you not another peep mm-hmm. um but like when is that you know what i mean like it is right. kind of like a dream when you try and right. remember it well because the script everyone talks about the script that sam wrote like they, they show up and he passes out the script and they're photocopies of 27 napkins that he wrote <laughs> that he wrote the script on, which is is just like, you know, uh, basically a series of moments and like some limited dialogue. And like, that's that's it. You know, um, the most 19 year old boy move <laughs> yes. ever. Like yeah. one trip to Waffle House. And that's right. He left with the movie script. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I love um, you bringing up the dead eyes because that's one of my favorite things about this whole franchise is that I love that he imbued the deadites with humor mm-hmm. yes. with like this sense to mock the humans, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think is not original necessarily because I yeah. think demons always there's, there's always that element of demons understand that they are more powerful than humans. You know, they mock their kind of mortal existence and mm-hmm. the way that demons can, can play with them. But in a lot of horror movies, that that mocking is played very sincerely, and it's just it's very evil. Um, and the demon saying basically, "I am more powerful than you, and I know it, and you will not escape from me." Whereas the deadites, they like to like have fun with their prey, which mm-hmm. I always yeah. thought is very funny. And again, it just speaks to Sam's history with comedy. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted the Evil Dead, even though it's a much more straightforward horror film. It still makes me laugh every time mm-hmm. I watch it. Mm-hmm. And like he kind of we talked about he kind of has this meanness to him like, you know, I've heard that people love working with him and that he's like, you know, like a really wonderful you know director. But like he does have this mean streak to him. And you're right. I, I remember Anya as a kid, like the deadites being gleeful and messing with you was like the scariest part about them. Mm hmm. And, like, and the fact they can, that they each yeah. have like distinctive personalities as deadites too, like. You know, Shelly and Cheryl, like Shelly is basically just a monster, right? And then mm-hmm. and then Cheryl has like all of that personality going in, like her peeking through the 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 basement hatch or whatever yeah. is such an iconic thing, an iconic element. And then um his uh his girlfriend, Linda. um Linda, is like this creepy doll giggling like china doll thing that it, it ugh, it's just so they're so specific and so creepy um i do think a lot of that giving them that sort of um 
uh, like sarcastic personality, I think does come from the exorcist. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and and all of that, but I do think that it gets it, it like gives Sam Raimi like an excuse to like like I feel like he saw The Exorcist and was like, oh, okay, good, I can be funny, great, like you know, like because <laughs> um, yeah, I I agree, it, it, I I love that about the Deadites. I wish there were more Deadites in Army of Darkness. Um, there's only like two, maybe, um, and then a bunch of other uh, other stuff, but that's mm-hmm. my one. Uh, notch against army of darkness i think my one main notch is that it feels separated because there's not as many deadites as i would have wanted um for mm-hmm. an evil dead sequel because i love the deadites love them they're creepy you have to they're yeah. great yeah still kind of like you know there's are there aren't even a lot of imitation deadites that i can immediately think of no 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 and and i think that that is the positive side of this movie getting lumped in with zombies is that mm, mm-hmm. is that people are like oh yeah just zombies like whatever like they just talk in that one um and they just you know <laughs> and that's it and they don't they don't think about think it through at all and so as a result of that evil dead is allowed to be in this very specific place of like the cross between zombie and Demon, demonic possession in a really interesting and unique way that mm-hmm. yeah no one else does which i think is fascinating yeah and i feel like the look of the deadites is very original as well you mm-hmm. know you can see the inspiration from the exorcist from the makeup that went into linda blair when she's mm-hmm. possessed but the deadites still have their own features that i've mm-hmm. never seen before um, and haven't seen since. And so I feel like the Deadites really get to kind of occupy this space of very individual monsters and in horror that, you know, are not just a replica of something else. Mm-hmm. They they really get to have something of their own. Even if mm-hmm. they are inspired by other creatures, they mm-hmm. they stand entirely on their own. Yeah, like their smile, their vocal, they mm-hmm. yeah, they have personality like we've talked about. The I'm so excited. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm so excited to see the first footage from Evil Dead Rise to figure out where on the barometer is it sitting? Is it going to have comedic elements or is it going to be like a horror drama like the remake, you know? Um, I, I'm, I'm so interested to see where it ends up being, where it ends up sitting, um, supposedly coming out this year. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah. That's a big part of why we kind of scheduled this. Yeah. Yeah. We scheduled this to, to basically, you know, cap it off with evil dead rise, but now we're not sure because of discovery messing everything up over at Warner brothers. We're not, we're not sure what, what is going to become of that movie. Um, if it's going to hit HBO max, like it was supposed to, or if it's going to get like a theatrical release, like next year now, I, who knows? So. I will say they have started to do preview screenings of it mm. because my wife and I got an invitation to one and we were unable to go, unfortunately, oh, or else I would have loved to bring that knowledge. But they are starting to do the early audience test screenings of it. Yeah, I've so, heard the test screenings have gone really well, and that's why yeah. they're thinking about shifting to a theatrical release. I think that um, would be the smarter move. Uh, yeah, I mean, theatrical release almost always the smarter move, but... um. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know that they will be able to hit a theatrical release this year. I, I feel like then it's going to be coming out next year, maybe even a year from now, which is like a real bummer to think about. But 
I don't know. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Have it, have any of you guys seen a hole in the uh, a hole in the ground? The the director. Seen a few. I'm kidding. Uh, the the director's previous um film. No. no. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to watch that. You did before. not. I thought you did. You saw another movie with a very similar title. Yeah, uh, that was at Sundance. What was that? Um, John and the Hole. John and John the Hole. And the hole. Yeah. yeah, he puts he puts his family in a hole, and then like Kevin McAllister's his life for a while because <laughs> he's a sociopath. Yeah, <laughs> um, not great. Not a great movie. Don't love that one. But uh, I would like to see a hole in the ground. I don't know. It looks creepy. It's Irish. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Another anyway. horror. Yeah. Uh, we get our first Raimi montage. Yes. When uh, when Ash is like, you know, chaining Linda to the table to uh, gets the chainsaw. Uh, yeah. Anya, what do you think of that? That first Raimi montage? Oh, I love it. I think it's I think it's so distinctly him. And I love that we get to keep seeing that um, as the franchise goes on. And it's such a fun way to, I think see ash starting it's like glimmers of ash starting to become the hero mm-hmm. starting to kind of mm-hmm. take the lead um which he started to do a little bit in this film but then like it ramps up um and i think especially with the montage and you start to see that final girl emerge like ash mm-hmm. is now committed to staying alive he is going to survive this and you love seeing that in a hero Mm-hmm. and seeing that yeah. here is really great yeah you know I, I was thinking about that too because like at this point he is like the last one standing and you know we've been talking about like how ash became such an endearing character to audiences and like at this point of the movie it is just us and him like no one is even there to watch ash undergo this transformation from like mm-hmm. kind of a dork to this like survival i'm gonna live guy because no one's around to see it it's just we're the only one getting to cheer for him yeah. Yeah. It is interesting that Ash Ash is a a, a really interesting example of the uh, that Pixar rule of like we don't care about characters because they're good, we care about them because they try, you know? <laughs> so I and I just think that that's so interesting. It's like that is how we get on his side. It's like we're just watching him try to survive and barely getting through scrapes. The thing that I think is interesting about that montage that I really, really like is the, the buildup of it, right? In the, in, in the sequel, it's build up to like a big heroic, like fist pump, the groovy, right? Moment. <laughs> and in this movie, it's a build up to like, what's going to be something crazy. And then he just has this emotional breakdown. And so it just cuts the legs right out of that hero- big, moment that you think it's building up to yeah um which i think is a really interesting use of this um and also that emotional breakdown that he has in that shed is one of many like a half dozen that they shot for the movie that they cut all of them out just to keep the movie going running at a clip but like originally there was a lot more of Ash just being like, oh, my God, like I can't kill my sister. I can't dismember my sister. She's my sister. I grew up with her like a lot of more of that. Like she's my girlfriend. I love her. I don't want to do this to her. He's my best can't friend. Her, I don't Cheryl, do- she's a friend of ours. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot more of that in the movie mm-hmm. to really like hit home the more like grounded nature of what was happening. Um, mm-hmm. But they they just pulled all of that out and just went like full, you know. Uh, uh, like I, you said, like machine gun 
uh, whatever. Yeah, I think it yeah. works, though. I think the reason that they were allowed to pull it all out and still have it work is, for me, what always strikes is when he makes the decision to bury Linda without dismembering her. Mm-hmm. Even though he has listened to the tapes, he knows now what it takes to actually kill a deadite, yep. but he is unwilling at that point to dismember Linda. He right. will not harm her in that way, even though she is possessed, she is trying to kill him. Mm-hmm. She is decidedly not his girlfriend anymore. <laughs> but Ash, and this again speaks to, I think, just the fact how they made him endearing. Like we were talking about the empathy mm-hmm. that final girls tend to possess. And the fact that Ash, even though he knows the way to win, he can't do it yet. Yeah. He instead wants to bury her in this, you know, what is more traditional, more respectful way of laying someone to rest. And yeah. he tries. It obviously does not work. Uh, right. And Linda ends up getting delightfully decapitated. Right. A fantastic scene. But it's interesting that Ash, despite knowing the answer, won't do it at the yeah. beginning. Well, it's so funny because, like, you know, I think the evolution of him from this to like becoming like a prick an army of darkness who's just like whatever you're dead to me bye and like yeah growth but not growth between between evil dead and evil dead 2 i would say because i think the difference with army of darkness is he doesn't know any of those people um you know mm. so like they're it's meaning they're all just deadites it's him. just pillow talk baby yeah right <laughs> sure <laughs> but but in the case of evil dead and evil dead 2 he gets to know all these people and i think the thing that again like once again makes you endears you to this character is that he is not willing to hurt them if they're not trying to hurt him like that's the Mm. only time that he pulls that trigger of like i have to decapitate my girlfriend with a shovel is like if i don't she's gonna kill me like that's that's it that's the only time he'll cross that line and it's only scott that fully dismembers shelly Uh, And she's just standing there like she's not doing anything. He just is like freaked out by how she looks and just chops or chops her to pieces with that axe because he's a piece of shit and Ash isn't. (laughs) Exactly. It all comes back to Scott being a piece of shit. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Because Um, even after Scott does that and then when Scott turns into a deadite when he comes back, Ash still doesn't dismember him or is it i think it's cheryl and scott that attack him at the end yeah he kills them by throwing the book in the fireplace like right ash still does not is not the one who really commits kind of those those acts of violence against the people he knows right right um two pieces of standout gore wrapping up that i i just hey we have to talk about when he punctures scott's eyes and just there's no other word for it the goop yeah, that comes out. I but I find that that doesn't make me wince the way that the ankle thing, the the pencil in the in the tendon does. Sure, it sure, makes me yeah. just go like it's the first time that there's gore in this movie. Um, that I mean, there's lots of gore in Evil Dead Two that makes me laugh, but this is the first gore in this movie that I kind of chuckle at because it's just so obscene how much goop comes out. <laughs> um, and I and I can't help but like kind of chuckle at it. I don't know. It's very weirdly satisfying watching it happen. It is. There's something specifically horrifying and fun almost about when it yeah. comes to like eye horror. I think there are certain certain body parts, your eyes, your mouth. 
that when horror directors decide like oh we're gonna do some body horror with those parts you're a little like oh no and it always is just something that's so gross and fun Mm -hmm. and yeah where i think the pencil is one of those things where you're like you feel that pain yeah with the pencil or uh to go back there's a moment where uh uh ash is burying cheryl and she jumps up and starts like clawing at his leg Mm -hmm. that's another big like wincing moment yeah yeah um and then also very evil dead 2 very goofy and fun is at the very end when the deadites start rotting and like just any kind of liquid they could get their hands on from crafty is just like spewing out of these things. Mm-hmm. There's bugs. It's perfect. I mean, evil dead is not evil dead unless Ash Williams is covered in blood. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. that end with Scott and Cheryl just starting to like burst and explode <laughs> essentially at him. And I it's, I've always loved these scenes the most because I can just picture Sam Raimi off camera, like, just utterly delighted, like, cackling to himself, watching Bruce Campbell just get covered in this mm-hmm. fake blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yeah, the, the, there, this is when, really, in these closing moments where, like, the passion and the glee come out. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the scene with the projector, with the blood dripping on the projector. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I just think that's a very visual distinctive. It is the... The shot of this movie that I think of when I think of like when I think of the first Evil Dead, that's the shot that I think of. Mm. Um, I associate it, I think, because of the song coming back at the end, which also the sort of ha- the the horror film that ends on a happy go lucky song. That sort of like comedic element um, you see happen all the time now, but I don't know that that had ever happened before this movie. I want to say this was maybe the oh. first instance of the sort of ironic use of like a happy tune at the end of like a grueling horror experience. <laughs> um, you know what I think is underrated is the unironic mid-tempo 70s ballad that plays after a horror movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's really good, too. There, this and the score for this film is fantastic. My wife and I have it on vinyl, and one of our also our favorite experiences. We went to, um, of course, I am completely blanking. There's a horror film festival in Los Angeles. I don't oh, know if you guys, I know, I, I'm completely, I know what you're talking about because I remember when this happened, um, and I couldn't get tickets because it sold out so fast. Yes, but. my my wife and I got tickets, and when we went to go see The Evil Dead with, um, I think it was like a four member, like string, mm-hmm. like quartet. Yeah, I believe it was, and they did the score for the film live as we watched the film. It, was it the and new score? The 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 newly, yes, the redone score. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yes, and it was just an amazing experience and utterly beautiful, and it makes you. You know, it's one of those things where when I think about this film, the music is not one of the first things that pops into my head no. about what I love about this film or what has made an impression on me. But when I go back and I hear it, either on the vinyl record or hearing someone perform it live, you realize how effective it really is. And mm-hmm. I think it's a testament to the fact that perhaps I don't always remember it, that it just works so well ingrained into the film. Mm-hmm. And it just is part of the setting of the film. 
Yeah, definitely. There isn't like, you know, a, a, a Halloween theme that, you you know, you hear a ringtone and you're like, oh, Evil Dead. Right, right. But it just, it works when you're watching the film. It is something that um, really heightens the film's effects, I think. Mm-hmm. And the mood and the like. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Eerie dread. Um, I, uh, I, I do think, well, yeah, Scott, because I, I was going to like, do closing thoughts, but I wanted to. Oh yeah, well one one other thing I wanted to mention, I forgot to mention this when we were talking about that Shaq scene. Um that scene was edited by Joel Cohen, who was the assistant editor to the editor of this movie. He was like he was like his assistant. And so he threw him a bone and was like, Hey, edit this Shaq scene together. And so he edited it together and Sam was like, Holy shit, who edited this? This is amazing. <laughs> um and then they like became really good friends. And then he told him about Within the Woods and how he did Within the Woods as a proof of concept to get the budget for this. And then Joel would then go on to create a proof of concept for Blood Simple, which he would then turn into a feature exactly in the same way and so they just inspired each other in that way which i think is and they, they've they been doing that their whole career i think um because you know i love that yeah yeah uh i just i think that's so that's so fun um but uh yeah it's because that's that's the thing there's that really famous shot in blood simple where they they use a shaky cam which is what he called the the camera on the on the two by four um they use the shaky cam and like kind of push through a bar like on 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 a on a bar top and they like the camera like swoops across a bar top and then like comes up against like a a beer glass that's like right in front of them and then the the camera just sort of goes over the beer glass and like it, it was like a thing that people had just never seen before of like a camera avoiding an obstacle like in a movie like that seems like it would be an outtake, but it wasn't an outtake. It was like on purpose. Like they just had the camera avoid something that was in its way. Um, and that all came from them watching evil dead and being like, Oh, you can do that with a camera. Um, which I think is just so interesting. But, uh, yeah, without, without Sam, Ra- without Sam Raimi, you don't have the Coen brothers and without the Coen brothers, you don't have sort of like later day Sam Raimi, things like a simple plan and, for the love of the game and all of that stuff. So Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah. And Spider-Man, definitely Spider-Man, especially the daily bugle scenes. Um, Iconic. uh, Yeah. The best. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I also want to give a shout out to Sam Raimi's brother, Ted Raimi, who Mm -hmm. I grew up adoring on Xena. Of course. Um, And then the fact that he always has like a, a bit role in Sam's films with the most prosthetic as the monsters right. as everything. And I just want to give a shout out to Ted Raimi for just always being down to clown. Yeah. On his brother's films. Cause he's such a, he's such a, um, he's always down for anything. And I love yeah. it. Do you happen yeah. to know when he shows up on camera in this movie? He's, he's in it a bunch because they, they okay. had to do this thing where um the, actresses they they paid them for a very specific period of time right mm-hmm. and then they had to like let them go and so they just basically shot all of their face stuff so anytime it's like the back of their head or they're in full makeup and it's obviously they're wearing a wig that's ted <laughs> um because <laughs> he was just their fake shemp which is like a, a term that comes from the three stooges and uh um them having to like reshoot stuff after like the actor who played shemp 
died. Um, and so they have like a bunch of fake shemps that they fill their movies with until they end up with um, Curly later on. But uh, but yeah, <laughs> they're done so creating he, Curly. Yeah, so he is he is credited as fake Shemp in this movie, and it's because like any time any of the actors they're like, we can't pay you anymore, you have to go home. They would just dress him up like those characters, put him in a bunch of makeup and a wig, and just have him wander around unfocused in the background um, to to get the shot that they need. So I think perhaps Ted's most iconic Evil Dead performance is. In Evil Dead 2, he plays the possessed Henrietta, and he of course. also plays that role in Ash versus Evil Dead in yes. the series, and that is just chef's kiss. Yes. Beautiful. Sh- Shem's yes. kiss. Shem's kiss. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Can't wait. Can't wait to talk about Evil Dead 2 and the rest of it, but yeah, what a what a ferocious... Just the vibes and the personality. I mean, that's kind of what keeps this movie alive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, like, and I think unlike yeah. Clerks, I think Clerks has fallen out of favor with, like, film school kids at this point. I think Evil Dead still remains as, like, mm-hmm. a film school, like, favorite kind of movie. Because of, of like, the skill. Yeah, because you can just... Right. You can just go and and, and make a movie with your friends, you know? And I mean, like, the thing about this is, like, this movie inspired me to do this so many times. And every time I tried, the problem was just, like, like I said, he could pay these people. I could not. And so it was just... As soon as my friends would realize, like, oh, this is a lot harder work than I was prepared for, they would all bail. And then it was like, well, I can't make a movie without other people, you know, which mm-hmm. is myself. Um, and so, yeah, I never really got to do this. But I attempted multiple times throughout, like, high school and college and my 20s, um, you know, just trying over and over again and never quite succeeding um, until I got to, like, make some short films, which was a little easier. But even then, I tried to make a pilot for our local college uh station um and i was like yeah like i'll make a pilot and you guys can like give me a budget if you like the pilot and i'll make like a scripted show for the college station and even that like i could not get people to like show up because they were like this is so much harder than i thought it was going to be and it's like yeah we're making a thing i don't all right (laughs) so it's it's just uh very lucky that um despite how hard this was that he was able to like pay people and uh, get it done. So, yeah. And we all benefited from that. So yeah. Yeah, Thank goodness because Uh, evil dead was a really big turning point for me and my love of horror as a genre and what mm -hmm. it could do and what it could be. Mm -hmm. And you know, that it was more than I had ever thought horror was. You know, I chalked horror up to a lot of stereotypes and why I didn't like it. And even with, you know, the Evil Dead commits one of the worst crimes for me in horror, which is sexual violence against women. And even with that, I'm able to, you know, most of the time nowadays, I just fast forward through that scene. Just don't even watch it because why? It's very easy to. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, But as a whole project, as a whole film, it really changed my perception. I think changed and challenged how I viewed horror and what horror could be. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a lifelong fan of horror. I It's one of my favorite genres. Um, Drag Me to Hell is also 
a fantastic Raimi horror uh, oh, yeah. moment. And Evil Dead was really what started it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where I would be in my horror loving life without Evil Dead. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Mm-hmm. Like, right. I think it's true for like, it, it's crazy how, you know, it's kind of like, this is the thing about the Velvet Underground's first record where like it sold a hundred copies, but everyone who bought it started a band. Yeah. Yeah. E- Evil Dead is like, you know, in terms of like teaching you how to watch horror, you know, it's the it's the movie that like teaches you that horror, yes, it can be scary, but it's scary like a roller coaster scary. Where it's scary, but it's really fun. Um, and it's it's marrying those two concepts in your brain. Um, I think that that Evil Dead does that with the safety wheels on, you know, where it's like it's it's training you. You got your training wheels and it's like Sam Raimi's like, no, 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 this is fun. Like you can feel him saying that the whole time. Right. Um, and so then you can take that sort of brain chemistry that you build watching the Evil Dead movies and watch other horror movies that aren't as obviously fun. And find the fun in them. Um, and uh, hmm. it makes it a really special film as a result. That's interesting. Yeah, because I think about like, you know, Tobe Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where mm-hmm. that was meant to be very verte. And, you know, they wanted to make the audience feel like they were really watching this happen to real, you know, real young people. And like, it doesn't have that sense of like a kid that's making you touch like melons in a bowl because they're eyes. <laughs> yes. Peeled grapes, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, I mean, the blood in Evil Dead, you know, is over the top and ridiculous and fun, whereas in Texas Chainsaw, it's not just the blood, it's the the oppressive Texas heat, it's the sweat, mm-hmm. it's the grime mm-hmm. of the location. It's, you know, much more, I think, I'm trying to figure out the word, but it's much more serious in how it wants mm-hmm. you to feel gross and disgusted by this, where in Evil Dead, like you were saying, Scott, like, Sam Raimi just wants you to have a good time. And yep. he says that quote when he um, when he first revealed that he regretted the tree rape, you know, he in that part of his quote about that was that he really does just want to entertain people. He wants to scare them. He wants to bring them on this thrill ride. And, you know, he's not evoking those feelings that something like a Texas Chainsaw does where it really, like, makes you horrified of the world. Yeah. Whereas Evil Dead, it's just a fun romp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Like ah. even the I remember as a kid, the tagline, the ultimate experience in grueling terror intimidated me. Mm-hmm. Um because I was like a little I didn't like big scary I didn't like scary movies. Like Beetlejuice scared me. And yeah. now I that that's such a huckstery like yes. sideshow, you know, <laughs> thing. A hundred percent. And that's that's the thing. It's like before you watch the movie, you're like, oh, Jesus Christ, this is going to be the scariest movie I've ever fucking seen in my entire <laughs> life. And then after watching it, you're like, oh, it's a joke. That's a, that line is a joke. Like, it's silly. Like, yeah, you, you, you like get he invites you to be in on the joke, which is just sort of the, the best magic trick of these movies. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Anya, thanks so much for being on. Really starting things off with a bang. Thank you so much for having me. This was fantastic. And thank goodness for Sam Raimi and Evil Dead. Uh Uh-huh. Do you have anything you want to plug to tell people where they can find you? 
read your yeah, stuff? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Anya Crittenton. I do writing of all sorts. Um, I'm currently writing for a nonprofit called Green America. So writing a lot about environmental justice, very different from this. But I do some freelance media writing for the Mary Sue slash film. You can find me yeah. all sorts of places. But Twitter, head over there. Yeah, absolutely. You're a good follow. Nice. Um, so Thank highly you. recommended. Um all right. Well, uh, thanks so much for listening, everyone. Um, for the first time in a while, there is not a, uh, a Patreon exclusive episode on the on the Patreon today. Um, that that mini series is over, so we're taking a franchise potential break on the Patreon. Um, but uh, you can still check out the Patreon because that whole mini series happened. Uh, you know, so you should definitely go back and listen to that if you haven't already. That's DuelingGenre.com/support. Um, just three dollars a month is all we ask to get that sort of bonus content. Um, and then $5 a month gets you sort of everything. I'm doing a Star Trek retrospective um, on on the Patreon right now, and that that goes to the $5 people. So um, check all of that out. It's duelinggenre.com slash support. Uh, make sure that you join the Discord. Follow us on Twitter. All of that is linked um, in uh, the show notes. So check that out. And we will be back next week with Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. Bye, everybody. Bye.